Well, last Sunday I got a, I didn't get through the whole message because I got a little carried away at <laughs> different points. So today I want to finish that up because it's just too important not to come back to, to what Peter was talking about as he was preaching from Solomon's portico and the great message of hope that he was delivering to those who had persecuted Jesus. So we just can't leave it there. What that means is if you're wed to the sermon card, if you pay attention to that all, we are now officially off schedule. <laughs> and, and, but don't, don't fret. Next week we'll try to bunch a few things together and get back on track. I, I just feel like we need to, to finish out this portion from Acts 3 before we move into Acts 4. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I want to sort of back up a little bit and talk about a subject that has come up before, and it's going to come up again, and I'm not sure that we all would recognize its significance. So I want to speak to that first, and then we're going to jump into Acts 3, okay? But before that, I'm going to pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful for the beauty of your word and, and uh, all that it means. And Father, we pray that you would uh, help us now to listen well and to receive what it is that you want us to hear this day. We know that you have brought us to this place and you have uh, invited us here and you are here. So Lord, we pray that your work would be done. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ben, can you pull that down just a hair? It's got a little bit of a ring that I, that'd be annoying for, th thank you. Thank you if you did anything at all, Ben. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I'm on, I'm on to you. So I want to talk a little bit first about the idea that Jesus had to suffer or that the Christ would suffer. You and I are beneficiaries of God's word. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and we've had that all of our lives, right? And so we've heard sermon after sermon that is sort of connecting the dots. We know the story of Jesus, we know that he was completely innocent. We know that he was perfectly sinless in his earthly life. We know that Jesus was wrongfully accused and mistreated and hung on a Roman cross of crucifixion to die. We know all about that. We know about Jesus suffering. So when someone says that Jesus has to suffer, we just say, of course, that was, the, that was God's plan all along. In fact, it was. Because in his sermon at Pentecost, Peter preached boldly. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things about preaching acts that is fun is that you don't have to dissect and exposit every single line because it's bound to come up again. And this is one of those that I let slide early on, this idea that everything that happened to Jesus was according to the predetermined, definite plan of God. So that, that's Acts 2, 22 and 23. In his second sermon, the second message that Peter delivered, 
he referred to Jesus as God's servant. We talked about that last week. And the holy and righteous one. And that language alludes to, brings us to, the scripture in Isaiah chapter 53. Which we now know as the suffering servant passage. Isaiah 52, 53, the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53, 10 to 11 is a prophecy about the Savior that we know is Jesus. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he, was, he has put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It was the Lord's will to crush his son. The soul of his servant would be in anguish. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus is opening the eyes of his disciples to what the scriptures say about him. Verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now back to Acts 3, Peter's sermon, Solomon's portico, where he rebukes the crowd for delivering over Jesus, for denying Jesus, for eventually killing Jesus. Acts 3.18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter is preaching to a Jewish crowd, and he wants to help them see that the suffering of the Messiah the one sent by God to save his people was God's plan from the beginning, right? Behold the Lamb of God slain from the foundation, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We read the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It would have been very easy for a Jewish person in that day to dismiss any claims of Jesus' lordship, of Jesus being that savior, because he didn't fit the notion of what they thought the Messiah would be. Even Jesus' own disciples struggled with this, you remember? Jesus, Master, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom? We're waiting for a political savior. We're waiting for a, 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 a military conqueror. We're waiting for someone to come who's going to vanquish all of our enemies and ultimately is going to get rid of evil. Jesus doesn't fit the bill for them. Have you ever envisioned something? In, in your mind, and then later on it turns out to be not at all like you envisioned. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? You hear somebody's voice, and you have in your mind what that person looks like, and then you meet them, and you're like, are you sure it's you? <laughs> That's not what I was thinking. Well, on a much more serious note, the Jewish people had some different ideas about what their Messiah would be. They were looking for a conquering king, and Jesus, to them, appeared to have been, without a fight even, really conquered himself, conquered by death. So in their eyes, he lost. Jesus, 
loss. He could not have been the, the, the awaited one. He could not have been the Savior. He was not triumphant. He was a loser. That's what it looked like. That's how they understood him. No one in that first century crowd would have been able to articulate the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. We know, we know that Israel had a history with a sacrificial system, right? Whereby the guilt of sinful people was transferred to an animal and the animal was sacrificed as a means of atonement. But they did not seem to connect this concept, the concept that was part of their everyday lives with their understanding of the Messiah. They did not recognize, as the Apostle Paul would go on to say, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. That Jesus is the lamb of God for sinners slain. The son of God who had to die in our place so that we could live forever. Now I just tossed out a pretty big term there, substitutionary atonement. That's a mouthful. And it may not be clear to everybody what I mean by that. So let me just try my best to, to, to give it justice in a paragraph, okay? According to the scripture, sin is rebellion against God. God is holy, and he cannot simply turn a blind eye to our sin. And our rebellion against God, and the Bible says all of us are guilty of that, right? Must be punished. And in the Old Testament, the sin of God's people was acknowledged and their guilt transferred to animals who were sacrificed. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. But the animal sacrifices were insufficient. No animal sacrifice could fully atone for the sins of humanity. So Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, came into the world, lived a sinless life of obedience, was completely undeserving of the wages of sin, which is death, and he died in the place of his people. He stood in, friend, for you. And he stood in for me. He was the substitute. He took on himself, on the cross, the full punishment of God that you and I have earned and that you and I deserve. That's what happened at Calvary. And so the author of the book of Hebrews would go on to write, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's what the writer of Hebrews is, is sort of pulling the curtain back. All I'll say, this is what they do, and they do it day in, and they do, do it day out. But why do they have to keep going back day after day? Because it can never fully take away man's sins. But, Hebrews 10, verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, Jesus 
has done it. So Jesus is not disqualified from being the Messiah because of his suffering, as some would have thought. This is why Jesus is saying, make sure they know that Christ must suffer. It's just the opposite. He is affirmed in his position because of what he endured on behalf of those who would believe in him. No one has greater love. What greater love is there? There is no greater love than the love of Christ who gave himself up. Now that's someone you can revere, someone you can respect, someone you can call Savior. The scriptures predicted that Jesus would suffer and die. Now, you see how this revelation, just the possibility of that, right, would send shockwaves through the crowd. They, they would be in awe because they would all of a sudden be confronted with the reality, which is the reality that Peter is giving them. You killed the Messiah. He really is the Messiah, and you killed him. You see how that reality of a suffering Messiah would throw a boulder into the pool of static thought that all these people had about what Jesus should look like. He was the Savior, obedient to the predetermined plan of his Father, which included that he should suffer and die to atone for the sins of people. And as proof that his sacrifice was sufficient, that it was sufficient payment, that it was acceptable to God his Father, God raised him from the dead. All right. Now you see why the resurrection is such a stumbling block. Because before we could say he's not the Messiah, he's a loser, he's dead. And Peter's saying, excuse me, he's alive. Yes, he was killed, he was buried, but God raised him up. He's not conquered at all. You think he's conquered. He's not conquered at all. He has conquered the greatest of humanity's enemies, the enemy of death. And it's not a theory, Peter's saying. This isn't a pipe dream. This isn't, this isn't just something that we made up. People have seen the risen Jesus. Remember, he was on the earth for 40 days. People have seen him. They know he is alive. And as proof, as proof, we, we ourselves are witnesses. Now, isn't that beautiful? Because Jesus said, you shall be my what? Witnesses. And here's another opportunity for Peter to do exactly what Jesus told him to do. And when we bring it back to Acts 3, by what means, we'll get to this in Acts 4, by whose name, by what power do you do these things? But even before that, Peter and John are quick to testify, it is in human power, it is in human piety, this man stands before you, this lame beggar is perfectly well standing before you because Jesus is alive and because Jesus is still doing miracles. So Peter indicts his hearers for how they misunderstood Jesus and how they misunderstood Christ's mission and he says, and he get, concedes it, I know you acted in ignorance. I know you don't know any better. I know you acted in ignorance. But and we went over this last week. Ignorance is still no excuse. Even though they were genuinely ignorant because they didn't know their own scriptures, they were nonetheless still guilty, as are all of us culpable, guilty 
for the death of Christ because he went to that cross bearing the sins of humanity. So you could be ignorant of it. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard such a thing. And you go, I've been ignorant of this my whole life. It doesn't mean that you're not a sinner, does it? And therefore, it doesn't mean that if you come to know Jesus, he didn't die for your sins. He's not conquered at all. He's a king. He's triumphant. Even though they killed the author of life, God raised him up. And so Peter implores them to do the reasonable thing when you find out that you really made a horrible mistake. What to do when you've really stepped in it? What to do when you have completely messed up? Repent. That's what he says. Repent, turn back. Just go in a different direction. Stop going in this dangerous, uh, miserable, selfish direction of your life. Turn back and come to God. He implores them to repent, to have a change of heart that would lead to a change of life. That's how we know, that's how we know repentance has actually occurred when we have a change of heart that leads to a change of life. It's a turning. A lot of people say they're sorry. Probably you have. I'm sure I have. I know I have. I don't have to say I'm sure. I know I have. I bet you have too. When you say you're sorry, and you may be just sorry that someone's irritated at you. You're really not sorry that you did anything wrong, and you probably do the same doggone thing next time. I'm confessing that. We're not talking about that sort of placation. We're talking about repentance, a change of heart that leads to a change of life. That's how we know that we are truly repentant when we say, I'm so sorry for what I've done, and I'm not doing that anymore. By God's grace, I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to be changed. I'm going to let God do what only God can do in me. That is repentance. And that's what Peter is saying. Listen, you've done something horrible, but, but, but you still... You still can be saved. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn again. So now we are in Acts chapter 3. You see why it takes so long? Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Albert Burns um, wrote this thing called Notes on the Bible, and he explains this expression to be blotted out. It means to be forgiven. It means to be pardoned. And he goes on to write this, the expression to blot out sins is taken from the practice of creditors charging their debtors, and when the debt is paid, canceling it, or wholly removing the record. The word used here properly refers to the practice of writing on tables covered with wax, and then by inverting the stylus or instrument of writing, smoothing the wax again, and thus removing every trace of the record. This more entirely expresses the idea of pardoning than blotting. It means wholly to remove the record, the charge, and every trace of the account against us. In this way, God forgives sins. So that is what is offered by faith in Jesus. When you put your trust in Jesus, when you confess, when you repent, it is a clean record. That's what you're getting, a clean record. On the cross, Jesus paid for and effectively wiped out our wrongs. In their place, he gives us his perfect record, his righteousness. In him, we have no guilt before God. We have no reason to fear the punishment of God. We do not owe God for our transgressions because Jesus paid for them. So turn from your sin and to God 
Peter says, so that your sins can be blotted out, so that you can get a clean record, because you've got a miserable record now. But you can have a clean one. And then verse 20, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now this promise here, I think, I think, um, I think this has both a future and a present component, because in the future, in eternity, God will dwell with his people and they will be with him forever. So the presence of the Lord will always be. We will always be in God's presence. God will be with us, right? Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's how it started on the earth. That's how it's going to end up with a new heaven and a new earth, an eternity of rest and refreshment where all the people of God are dwelling with God, God with them forever. And that is the future of every believer. And that is definitely something that Peter is holding out here. Repent and believe. Repent and turn so that times are ref you may experience these times of refreshing. But I think there's also a, a current or a present time component here as well to this promise in that one can be refreshed by the presence of the Lord anytime she or he turns from sin into God that we have these moments when God refreshes our spirit because we've finally chosen to do the right thing you see when we when we are not in the Lord's will when we knowingly do what is wrong our hearts are very rarely refreshed. In fact, they are drained. To persist in doing wrong is, well, it is for most people anyway, to live with a, a even if it's a low-grade sort of rumbling sense of dissatisfaction or dis-ease or uncomfortableness. We're not living up to all that we were created to live up to. So we're easily discontent. Sometimes we may even feel a particular heaviness in our lives. It's, it's, joy escapes us. Fun escapes us. Comfort escapes us in any, any meaningful, long-term, sustained way. It could be that we're struggling under the weight of the guilt of our sin. It could be that we're just worried about being found out, worried about being exposed. Anyway, it keeps us on edge. We're not content. And when we knowingly do what is wrong, that's the worst, right? When we stubbornly refuse to do what we know is right, we absolutely forfeit peace and the happiness that comes from repentance and being forgiven. In Psalm 32, King David testifies to the weight of sin and he rejoices because of the refreshment that comes from forgiveness. I think Faith read this passage for us last week. I'll read it quickly for us so we can be uh, reminded. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In those moments when I did not confess, when I did not come before the Lord for relief, 
His heavy hand is on me and my strength is dried up by the heat of the summer. It's been a hot summer. I don't know if you raise a garden, but if you do, I know you've been working pretty hard at it. Or if you're like me and you live and let live. <laughs> you take a walk around my house and you're like, those poor flowers. Not the ones that Liz takes care of. Those are beautiful. I'm talking more about the wild ones that God's taking care of right now. And apparently he's letting all the snow on the mountain die. That's what sin, unchecked, does like the heat of the summer. It just drives you down. It saps your energy. It takes away your life. And that's where David was. That's what he felt like. He was doing the wrong thing. But then I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave. Remember we talked about that. God's, God's much quicker um, and more willing to forgive than we are to confess. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So he admits to the burden of living with unconfessed sin, David does. And it really is hard to live joyfully when you're doing wrong, especially when you know better. How much sweeter it is to put away that sin that separates you from the Lord, the wrongdoing that makes you weary. How much better to be reconciled to God, to come out from under his heavy hand, to enjoy the refreshing that comes from living with integrity, living with integrity, being integrated, not double-minded, not double-motivated, living in his presence. That's what happens when a sinner turns to God. When we turn to God, we're no longer fleeing from God. We're no longer fighting uh, God. We are blessed by his presence. And when we do that, he sends times of refreshing. Times of refreshing. Times of revival presently, as he promises, and also eternally. That's what Peter is inviting these people to. Can you imagine it? I mean, these people are not nice people. They have just killed his best friend. And what did Jesus say when he was on that cross? Father, do what? Forgive them. They don't know what they do. And brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, but here's the truth. Now respond to this. He's not hating these people. He's inviting them. Do this and you will know. Refreshing. You don't have to carry the guilt for what you've done. And some of them are thinking it over, as we'll see here as we get into chapter 4. So, sins erased are refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And finally, Peter gives a third reason that one should repent. He said that God may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus. So in Acts 1.11, at the start of this study, we read that just as Jesus ascended into heaven, he will one day return to earth. You remember that? That's the beginning of Acts. As Jesus goes up, the angel's like, why are you looking up there? And I'd be like, because this is amazing. Jesus has gone up in the same way that he's gone up. He's going to come back. He will return to earth. He will come from heaven when the time is right for the restoring of all things, he promised his disciples, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus will come back. And when he returns, let me ask you, friend, will that be a welcome sight for you? When Jesus returns, will that be a welcome sight for you? I know I've shared this with you before, but it's so stupid. I should share it with you again. I remember being a young man and studying a little bit about the signs of the times and whatnot, and you're hearing about phenomena and blood red skies and all this. And I remember being 14 or 15 and walking down the hill that our house was on, and I'm looking at this sky, and it was amazingly red, red like, and I went, Oh, not now, Jesus. I'm. 
14, you know. I, seriously, I have things I want to do. And of course, you get older now, you're like, anytime, anytime, right? He's coming back. And when he comes back, we want it to be a source of joy, something that gives us great pleasure, something we delight in, something we celebrate. So I have to ask, when he comes back, will it be a welcome sight for you? And if there's even a pause in your answer, friend, I'm asking you to reconsider your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. But do you know for sure that when he comes back, you will have made the proper choice as regards his lordship over your life? Or will you be like a lot of them in this audience that Peter's preaching to, who had their chance to embrace the Savior? He was right there in front of them, but they rejected him instead. Repent and turn back, Peter says, so that when Jesus returns, you will enter the eternal time of refreshing, in the presence of the Lord. You will know eternal life. You will have escaped, been rescued from eternal condemnation. Repent and turn back. So when Jesus comes back, he comes back for you. When Jesus comes back, he comes back for you. Now let's take a, just a few minutes to wrap this up make the application of Peter's message to the people there and then to the people of United Baptist Church here and now. I have four points that I want to make real quick. Number one is this. There is hope if you turn from your sins. There's hope for anyone who's willing to turn from sin and to God. There is no sin so great that the cross of Christ cannot cover it. God is willing to pardon those who had denied his son, who had delivered his son up, who had assured his son's death, he is willing to pardon them. He is willing to pardon you. Will you be pardoned? There is hope if you turn from your sins. In Acts 3, 26, Peter said to the crowd, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. First, to the lost house of Israel, the word is coming. And Jesus, when he told his disciples that they would be his witnesses, where would they begin? In Jerusalem. And then Judea and Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. You see how this book just goes together all through it. So God has raised up his servant, and he's sending him to you first to bless you, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The opportunity afforded by a life of faith in Jesus is intended by God to be a blessing, never a curse, intended to be a gain, not a loss, an eternal gain, not an eternal loss. There is hope if you will turn from your sins. Second, total forgiveness is possible. What God wants to do is erase your record and replace it with a perfect record of his son. That's what he wants to do. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Acts, asks, aren't you glad that pencils come with erasers? <laughs> I love that. And his point is this, that we are all going to err. We are all going to sin. We are all 
going to make poor choices. We will wander. We will disobey. What do we do with it? What do we do with our error? What do we do with our sin? What do we do with our disobedience? Do we carry the record of our wrongs with us and stand before God in judgment? Do you want to be carrying that? Standing here saying, well, I did the best I could, but I've got eight semi-trucks full of problems back there for you to deal with. No way. Do you want to carry the record of your wrongs before God? Or do you want to trust that God forgives your sin because of the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross? I go with door number two. This is the promise of our memory verse, friends, from Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. They stand out to you like neon. They're going to be washed away. They're going to be cleaned. They're going to be removed. And, and Isaiah even says this is the reasonable thing to do, by the way. Come, let us reason together. So if you know Jesus as Savior today, then you leave worship with one, what writer, one writer calls the bliss of this glorious thought. That your sin was nailed to the cross. And that it was borne by Christ. And as another hymn writer has put it, Jesus paid it all. Forgiven and free. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Point number three, spiritual refreshment can be yours presently and is promised eternally. Just what Peter was, was uh, inviting those, his audience to receive, I, I likewise invite you to receive and to understand that spiritual refreshment can be yours presently and is promised eternally. So let me ask you, friend, today as you sit here, are you tired? Are you frustrated? Are you disappointed? Is your heart hard? Are you angry? Are you upset? Or are you joyful? Are you at peace? Are you content? The peace and the rest that all of us seek for and all of us need is in Christ. And it cannot be found elsewhere, although many will try and many have tried to find these things elsewhere. But the peace and the rest that we all seek and need is found in Christ, and it is yours for the asking. He is the bread of life to satisfy your hunger. He is the living water to satisfy your thirst. There is absolutely no reason for you to linger in a dry and a barren land. Just turn. Turn and go to God. And his desire is to refresh you with his spirit and with his very presence, his very powerful presence in your life, repentance brings refreshment, so turn. Point number four, you can be, and if you are saved, you will be a participant in the restoration of all things at Christ's return. This alone is why you and I can endure with hope some of the worst things that life will throw at us. Some of what the Apostle Paul, when everything was falling apart in his life, called light and momentary afflictions, right? You read that, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, you're like, light and momentary? Feels so heavy, feels, feels like it's going to kill me. No, he says, because we're actually keeping our 
eyes on the things which are unseen versus those which are seen, and the things which are eternal versus those which are temporary. And no matter what you're going through, and no matter how hard it is, and for some of you, it's super, super hard. I know, it is. One day, it'll be worth it. One day, one day, the glory of God will be yours eternally. The best, this is the message of the Bible, that the best is yet to come. You're not going to get the best in this world, but the best is yet to come. Jesus is coming back. Let that prospect fill you with joy and not with dread. Our Father, we thank you for the beauty again of your word. It really is remarkable, God, how you have designed this word to be so consistent, so wonderful, so, so true. And we praise you and thank you that you've chosen to reveal it to us, that we might know you in a better way. Father, we pray for those this day who are not feeling refreshed, who are not repentant. We ask that your spirit would convince and convict and move us to change. And for those who do know peace, even in the midst of some very difficult times, God, we give you praise. And for those who are looking forward, Lord, keep us faithful and hold us fast. We wouldn't take for granted that we're on the right track today. We will be tomorrow. We need you every step of the way. God, do what you do. Help us to be open to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.